Hi, I'm Steve Scott, and welcome to Knowing Him. Well, I'm really excited about what we're going to start in this episode. It's actually going to go on for a couple episodes, maybe three or four. But we're going to look at Jesus' two-minute huddle. Uh, Anybody that watches football knows that uh, the end of the game, the last two minutes, they go into a two-minute offense, usually with the hope of scoring one time and winning the game in that two minutes. Uh, I actually saw a game as a boy many years ago. I think I was in college, either college or high school. And um, it was about two or three minutes left. And Johnny Unitas with the Baltimore Colts in two or three minutes ended up scoring uh, with his passing and stuff. Three touchdowns. They turned the game around in three minutes. Uh, those huddles in the last couple minutes or the offensive strategy is completely different than the rest of the game. And, uh, and it's oftentimes the difference between winning and losing. Well, Jesus had a two-minute huddle. It didn't last two minutes. It lasted a couple hours, but it was for the, at the very end of his life on earth. And uh, we see all this recorded primarily in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 13, all the way through, uh, through the end of chapter 16. And what's happening here is we're going to see Jesus reveal some things to his disciples that he hadn't talked about earlier, yet the things he reveals is more important to their future life, their future ministry, uh, what they're really going to see, how they're going to see miracles and everything else. It's more important than any other instruction that he had given them in his life, maybe other than the Sermon on the Mount. But he, at least what he's doing, he's going to give them what what uh, in military terms would be your your orders. Uh, you know, when you go on a combat mission, uh, you're handed a set of orders. It tells you where you're going to uh, deploy. You're going to fly to here, and then you're going to do this, and then you're going to do that, and this, and this, and that. And those are your orders that supersede all other orders you've ever received. So here we are at the Last Supper, and Jesus is going to give instructions and revelations to his disciples that could be argued are the most important things he's going to leave them with. Um, And we're going to look at those. But before we look at those, I want to give you the setting. For three and a half years, the disciples have depended upon Jesus for everything. They are truly convinced that he is the Son of God. They are truly convinced that um, what he says is fact. Now, you know, they still have doubts about different things. It's crazy how their doubts keep coming up, but they, they are as convinced as they could be. Now, they've been with him for three and a half years. They have seen every miracle. They have heard every sermon. They've heard him pray often. Now, oftentimes he would go off by himself and, self and pray, and they wouldn't hear those prayers, but they heard him pray over and over again. Uh, 
I'm sure they learned a lot from him that are not recorded in any of the four Gospels. But I also believe that the Gospels recorded those things which were truly most important. Now, here at the Last Supper, all of a sudden, he has indicated to them, in fact, he's told them plainly for a long time, but they, it just doesn't register, that he is going away. And he's going to go away, and he's not going to be there physically for them. And they're in a state of panic because they've relied on him for everything, for instruction, for direction, uh, literally for food, for, for protection. He, all of their confidence has been in him. Uh, their faith has wavered. Their faith has been like waves on the ocean. Sometimes they believe, other times uh, their doubts get the best of them. Uh, they believe in some ways, but don't believe in other ways. I mean, we see that. It was really kind of a up-and-down elevator-type experience uh, between Jesus and the disciples. But right now, it's starting to dawn on them. He is going away. He is going to leave them. And so first, they are panicked. They are discouraged. Uh, depression may be setting in. Despair because they don't know what the future holds. They can't imagine after three and a half years with him, uh, leaving their families, leaving their businesses, they can't imagine life without him. And so they're panicked. Now that's from their side. From his side, think about it. He is a few hours away from uh, the greatest suffering he can't even imagine uh, suffering beyond anything that you or I have ever experienced. Uh, yes, he will be tortured, but that won't be his greatest suffering. He will be uh, scourged, which is 39 lashes with a cat of uh, nine tails, which means it's a, it's a leather whip that's filled with uh, lead hooks and stones. It Literally, he's going to have his the skin ripped right off of his back. Uh, many men died of shock when they were went through the scourging process. Uh, that was a Roman form of punishment. And uh, so, whether or not he would even live through that uh, is to be is questionable. But it's going to be terrible. We we can't imagine that kind of torture. Um, we know what the crucifixion is going to do that uh, not only is he going to be nailed to a cross, but he is going to have to elevate himself to take a breath more than 5,400 times. When he relaxes, he can't breathe in. When he breathes in, he has to lift himself to take the breath and then lower himself. And he's going to have to do that 5,400 times in the six hours that he's going to be on the cross. Uh, but even that isn't causing him uh, any, it's not what he's worried about. The thing that is tugging at his heart that, that he knows is going to be his greatest trial during this whole thing isn't going to be the physical side. For the first time in all of eternity, he's going to discover sin. He's always seen it. 
He's always known about it, but he has never sinned. He has, he has gone through his life, tried and tempted in every area, just like you and me, where he couldn't draw on his divinity. When it came to temptation, he had to resist it by faith. That was his resistance. He had to put his trust in the Father, in the Holy Spirit, uh, in the Word of God. Uh, and he has succeeded. Thankfully, he, he never once fell to temptation. Well, guess what's going to happen on the cross? He's going to become my sin. He's going to become your sin. He's not only going to have to taste the sewage of our sin, he's going to have to literally be immersed in it. He's going to take on all of our sin for the first time in all of eternity. He's going to feel the father's abandonment. Not that the father really abandoned him, but the father could not have this intimate fellowship that he had known his entire existence. He had been intimately connected to the father. One, one spirit, one unified on absolutely everything and now that's going to be terminated in a moment in time because the father cannot enter into our sin it has to be the son he alone is the lamb of god he alone is going to be slain for our sins and yet in spite of that staring him in the face in John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, we see this incredible amount of concern for his disciples. We see the agape love pouring out of him. We see compassion and empathy. Uh, we see resolution. We see him trying to give instructions to the disciples that will get them through what they're going to have to go through, not only when he's crucified, uh, but how about afterwards? What's going to happen? I mean, these guys don't have a clue about their future, and they don't understand. They don't understand why he's leaving them. They really, down deep, believed he was going to usher in the kingdom of God, uh, and they were going to be ruling right there with him. This is uh, a change of plans. Well, what we see in him, uh, the amount of revelation, the amount of compassion, empathy, uh, what he reveals to them that he had never revealed before is truly transformational for you and me. And it will transform their lives when the Holy Spirit's going to come uh, about 40 days after the resurrection. And when the Holy Spirit comes, all the things that they're confused about, guess what? It's going to be cleared up. The Holy Spirit's going to remind them of all the things that happened this last night with Jesus. And, um, and everything's going to come together and make sense. Well, thankfully, you and I already have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to wait 40 days like they did. But that's the setting. So I'm not going to go deep into John chapter um, 6 chapter 13 at this point, I'll just point to a couple of the highlights. One of the highlights is he is going to tell them that um, he is going away. And the first thing he does that is radical, oh my goodness, he does two things that are so radical. The first thing he does that's radical 
is he becomes their servant. Rabbis never served their disciples. Remember when we talked about the rabbinical yoke in a previous episode, and he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he, he, he was showing them that, and showing us that he wasn't going to make uh, man-made demands and commands on us that, that weighed us down uh, like typical rabbinical yokes. And he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, now he is going to actually shift from being their master to being their servant. Oh my goodness. He wraps a towel around himself, gets a bowl of water, and one by one, he washes their feet. Um, He humbled himself. And it was shocking. It was so shocking to him that when he gets to Peter, Peter says, hey, no way are you going to wash my feet. Excuse me, I should be washing yours. You are not going to wash my feet. Jesus looks at him and says, then you can have nothing to do with me. And when he says that, Peter says, uh, not just my feet, how about my whole, my head, my body? Jesus said, that's not necessary. They're already clean. They were cleansed by my words. My words cleanse your heart, your body, but your feet are dirty. And that's what I'm going to wash. And so Peter submitted and Christ, one by one, showed that he was, could, could serve them to the point of washing their feet. Uh, unbelievable. And he said, just as I've done this to you, I want you to do it to one another. And he tells them that he wants them to serve one another because their personalities don't serve one another. They argue and argue and argue. And they don't operate, honestly, they don't operate as a team for the most part of their ministry. They did when they went out two by two. Uh, We see that in Luke chapter 10. But by and large, they were very independent. Lots of arguments, lots of fights. Uh, When they would fight, they were slow to forgive. That's why when Jesus told them they have to forgive one another seven times, if they repeat the same offense and repent, you got to do it seven times. And what does Peter say? Well, the whole group yelled out, not just Peter, Lord, increase our faith. He said, it's not a matter of increasing your faith. I've just given you a command to forgive one another. All you have to do is obey. And that just takes the tiniest amount of faith. And you guys don't even have that when it comes to obeying my commands. And later when Peter finally probably had a good day where he had forgiven somebody seven times and he kind of wants to brag on it. Hey, hey, how many times are we supposed to forgive? Forgive seven times, right? Jesus says, no, seven times 70. Ugh, how can they do that? Well, guess what? It's humanly impossible without the Holy Spirit. And they're going to learn that. So you can see they're not only discouraged uh, panicking. They're not united at all. They're, in fact, shortly before the Last Supper, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And two of the disciples appealed to Jesus and said, hey, can we, can we sit at your table? Even their mother comes and says, can 
John and James be on your right and left-hand side. I mean, they're not getting it. Okay, does that sound like the teachings of Christ? No, not at all. And he reproves them for it and he corrects them. But here at the Last Supper, you've got you've got 12 individuals. One leaves. Of course, we know who that was, Judas Iscariot. He takes off to betray Christ. But the other 11, they're not united. It's not kumbaya time. It's not campfire time. But now Jesus is going to give them the most vital instructions of their life. But at the same time, his love and compassion shows right from the very beginning. Listen to how he starts chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust me. Okay. In my father's house, there are many mansions, many rooms, many dwelling places. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you guys, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. So we're going to be back together ultimately. But I've got some preparation I've got to do and you've got some work you're going to have to do. Um, And now we see something that's a little bit frustrating maybe even a little discouraging to Jesus. Here, think about all the time they had been with him and listen to this. He said, where I am going, you know, and the way you know. Thomas pipes up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Oh my gosh, three and a half years and Thomas still doesn't have a clue what's gonna happen. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, all truth is in me. I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Now he says something that is really revealing to you and me, and it's very applicable to you and me. He said, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. Wait a minute. These guys have been with him 24-7 for three and a half years, and now he's basically saying, you guys don't know me. And then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. Hey, as long as we're talking about the Father, show us the Father. That's all we need. Now listen to what Jesus said. Oh, And I just imagine his heart was breaking over this. He said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Whoa, three and a half years, every sermon, every miracle, and he tells Philip, you don't know me. Now think about this. How long have you been a follower of Jesus Christ? Three and a half years? 50 years? Uh, I came to Christ in 1964. So that is uh, 56, 58 years ago. 58 years. Yet would Jesus say to you or me, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me? 
Now, when he says that, he's not talking about knowing about him. They knew about him. But he's using that word uh, gnosis or gnosis, and that means connected, intimacy. Um, It's used of a man and woman when they come together in the marriage bed, okay? It's that level of uh, union. It really means union, uh, intimate knowing. Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come into an intimate union with me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. The things that I say, I'm not saying them. It's the Father in me doing these works. And he wants them to realize that not that they're, he's exactly God, the Father. He's not. He is maintaining an independence, but they are 100% unified in every way in their, uh, in their goals, in their mission, in their love for one another, in their love for the sheep and so on. They're in total, perfect union. We, we can't even imagine that because we've never had that kind of union with anybody. And he is a little discouraged. And then we get, he goes from that and he tells him something really interesting. He said, he who believes in me, this is verse 12, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm kind of saying from memory. He um, who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. So here he makes this incredible statement. He said, if you really put your trust in me, if you believe in me, if you put your faith in me, the very things that I do and have done, you're going to do also. Now that word greater can be interpreted two ways. It's a Greek word that can mean greater in magnitude or greater in number. You can interpret it either way. Well, obviously, we're not going to do greater in magnitude than Jesus did. We're not going to uh, cleanse men of their sin by laying ourselves down as an atoning sacrifice. That's the greatest work in the history of the universe. None of us are going to top that. But he's obviously, you see it in context, he says, greater things, will. Uh, if you believe in me, the things that I do, you shall do also, and greater things shall you do, because I go into my my Father. In other words, I'm not going to be here continuing to do the things that I've been doing. But you will be here, so you're going to continue doing the things that I've done, and more things than what I've done. You're going to end up teaching more people in more locations. You're going to make disciples, not just of Israelites, Jews. You're going to make disciples of all nations. All those things are going to happen. That's what he's telling his disciples. But also realize that the greater things refers to bearing fruit. And fruit isn't just winning people to Christ and discipling them. It is bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, they don't even know that the Holy Spirit's coming yet, but he tells them that. And he tells them that he is going to petition the Father and ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. And he says, it's to your benefit that I go away. Why? Because 
I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And even though the Holy Spirit has been with you in me, because the Holy Spirit indwells Jesus as well, he's been with you, but he will be in you. So he promises that he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will come and come into their spirit, their soul, and create a union with them that he, like he has with Jesus. And he will be in you. And on that day, this is an amazing promise, you will know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and you are in me, and I'm in you. So when the Holy Spirit comes, you are go- I'm actually going to be in you, and you're going to be in me. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to actually produce in us. He's going to create that union between you and me, like the union I have with my Father. So he's telling them the Holy Spirit is coming. And Jesus identifies in this Last Supper, 10 ministries of the Holy Spirit. He's actually, during his lifetime, identified an 11th ministry. And oddly enough, that 11th ministry is really the first ministry he identified, and he identified that ministry in the third chapter of John. And that's the ministry of giving spiritual birth. You see, when you're born again, Uh, you weren't born again because you prayed a prayer asking Christ into your life. You were born again when the Holy Spirit gave a spiritual birth to you because our our spirits were dead by sin. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in sin. We were dead. But God, being rich in mercy, verse 5, hath made us alive, hath quickened us, has birthed us, has made us alive in Christ Jesus, for by grace are you saved. Well, so the first ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus told Nicodemus about, and you and me about in John chapter 3, is this spiritual birth that takes place. Now, how do we know we're born again? How do we know we're born spiritually? Well, guess what? We have a new desire. So we pray and ask Christ into our life. That's an evidence. That's just one tiny evidence that you've been born again. If you have a desire to get closer to Christ, if you have a desire to love him, a desire to to, uh, get to know him more intimately, that's not the fruit of the flesh. That's not part of your old nature. Your old nature just wants to serve yourself. That's evidence that you've been born of the Spirit. So that's the first ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, but it's not the ministries Jesus identifies here in John, in, at the Last Supper. But he, had, he does tell the disciples the Holy Spirit's going to come. And the last thing we're going to look at uh, in this little series we're doing are the 11 ministries of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but right now we're going to kind of bypass them a little bit. Uh, but uh, Jesus has at least announced right here in John 14 that the Holy Spirit's going to come. Now, uh, the first ministry that we're going to look at, because it relates to much of what we're going to say, so we are going to look at this one. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, uh, I believe this is in 14, verse 26. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance or your memory whatsoever things I have said unto you. 
So the whole reason that we have the gospel recordings of the life and teachings of Christ is that the Holy Spirit, when he did come, he did begin reminding the disciples uh, of everything Jesus said. And that's what they went about teaching. They went about teaching the teachings of Christ. They taught what he said. Did they go about teaching the Old Testament when they had to, but that wasn't their focus. Their focus was teaching the teachings of Jesus. That's why we have a gospel record uh, of that because the Holy Spirit wanted them. So he, he said, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance whatsoever things I have said unto you. Then Jesus reveals something to them that I believe we talked about earlier. In starting in John uh, 14, 21, he reveals his love language. Okay, for those of you who haven't read The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, I would encourage you to get that book. It's a short book, but it, what it talks about is that each of us has a love language, a way we like to be loved. So my love language is words of affirmation. Um, I, when, when I hear from anybody, say there's two people, I have a, a company called Numi, and Numi has lots of distributors around the world. And if one of them wants to show gratefulness and show love for me, and they know my love language is, is um, words of affirmation, they might write me a note. In fact, some of them have written me emails and texts uh, Steve, I'm so grateful for this product. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for your teaching. Thank you for talking about this verse and this verse. It really blessed me. In fact, I used it in my marriage the next day. Okay, now those are words of affirmation. So that moves my, my joy meter from zero right up to the 10, right to the top. Now, somebody else might think, because one of the five love languages is gifts, receiving gifts. So they might think my love language is gifts. It's not. And so somebody in, in my organization will say they make a million dollars and they want to show their gratefulness. So they buy me a $25,000 watch. And they send me the watch. And that comes the same day that these words of affirmation comes. Now, I don't really know which one loves me more but the one that'll raise my joy meter to a 10, it's not the watch. That's not my love language. That would raise my joy meter maybe from zero to a three, okay? Because gifts aren't that important to me. Um, but I would, that's really nice. And I would think that guy really loves me, but it wouldn't raise my joy meter. Words of affirmation, boy, from zero, bing, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. That's what loving me with my love language would do. Well, God has a love language and it's not worship and it's not praise. Does he enjoy our praise? Does he want our praise and worship? Of course, it says he delights. He delights in the praises of his people. It says he inhabits. He really comes into our praise. He inhabits the praises of his people. So yes, he loves that. But Jesus here reveals what he and the Father, what their love language are, uh, love language is, I guess, singular. And uh, here's what Jesus says in John 14, 21 through 23. Uh, and I, I memorize from different 
I don't try to memorize, but I recall from different translations. And I read so many different uh, English translations these days, so you never know what it's going to come out. Kind of a mixture between the NIV, the New King James, and, um, and the New American Standard. So here's what he says. He says, He who has my commands and keeps them or obeys them, he it is who loves me. You want to love Jesus with his love language? Hear what he said and do it. Hear his commands and do it. He who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, here we go, my father will love and I too will love and I will manifest or reveal myself to him. That literally, I'll show him my heart. I'll show him my mind. I'll show him my will. I'll show him my desires. I'll show him what I love. I'll show him what makes me sad. I'll show him what makes me mad. That's what revealing is. That's intimacy. That's how you come into intimacy with the Son and with the Father. Look at it again. He who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, my Father will love. And he's using the word agape here. Agape is an action verb, okay? Agapir, uh, I think, is the verb. And he's he, love in an active way, a demonstrative way. God's going to express his love for you in a demonstrative way where you'll know, wow, that's God. That's his love. When I had a son uh, healed of cancer, man, that was an outward act of God's agape love. When I have another son healed of the same kind of cancer by <clears throat> a surgeon, that was God's agape love. Uh, being expressed, his love for my son, his love for my family in both cases. And um, undeserved love, his grace, all of that came, but it was agape love. So let's look at this again. We're going to really dive into this because this is critical. What Jesus is telling his disciples here, they don't understand, but when the Holy Spirit comes, they're really going to understand it. You and I have the Holy Spirit so we can understand it right now. He who has my commands and keeps them. He it is who loves me and he who loves me, my father will love and I too will love. I'll agape love that person and I'll reveal myself, manifest myself, show myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot. There were two Judases among Jesus' disciples. Iscariot's the one who betrayed him, but the other Judas now speaks up and says, Lord, how are you going to manifest, show yourself, reveal yourself to us. What about the world? Now here Jesus expands it. and Man, it's a glorious expansion because it includes you and me. Anyone, so that's any man, woman, boy, or girl. Anyone who has my teachings. So here he uses a different word than commands. It's his teachings, and Christ gave us hundreds of teachings. Oh, my goodness. Anyone who has my teachings and keeps or obeys my teachings, my Father will love. There's the agape, active love again toward us. 
And we, Father and Son, will come to him or her, man, woman, boy, or girl, and make our abode, our continual dwelling place with them. So God is saying here, Jesus is saying, that when you love me by hearing my teachings and doing them, my Father and I, we're going to come to you. Instead of you coming to us, whoa, is that a reversal? That's like him washing our feet. We're going to come to you, and we're going to make our dwelling place continuously with you. The word that's used here, as far as dwelling with you, is a tense of verb that we don't have in the English. It's the aorist tense. And what it means is it happens at a point in time, but it continues happening after that point in time. And that's what he's saying here. He's going to continuously make his dwelling place, he and the Father, with us. What a promise. Do you realize that means if we're in a concentration camp, he will uh, make his dwelling place in that concentration camp with us? If we're paralyzed in a hospital bed, he'll make that hospital bed his dwelling place with us. If we're all alone in a big field uh, or on the ocean in a life raft, he's going to make that his dwelling place with us. See, it's not going to depend on where we are because we're not coming to him. He's coming to us. That's amazing. What a promise. It's conditional. It's conditional that we do what the Father told us to do at the transfiguration, that we hear his son and we do what he says. Now you think, wait a minute. How can I do what he says? Man, he he says, love my enemies. He says, uh, Pray for those that curse me and abuse me. Uh, bless those who curse me. How can I do that? I, I don't have that. Forgive somebody hundreds of times. How can I do that? Well, here's the news. You can't. It's impossible for your old nature, but it's entirely doable for the Holy Spirit that's in you. And you see, when we yield to the Holy Spirit, it's not only possible, that's his natural outworking. Just like it's natural for you to breathe in and breathe out, it's natural for the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And the very first fruit of the Spirit we learn in Galatians 5.22 is agape love. And you see, agape love can do all those things that Jesus commands us to do, that he teaches us to do. Is it hard for the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus says? Not at all. It's his nature. So for us, it's just a matter of yielding. Do I yield to my old nature, my self-centered nature, which can't do any of the things Jesus teaches, or do I yield to my new nature, which is now uh, infused by the Holy Spirit? Now, also something else that we learned earlier uh, in John chapter 663, verse 63, is that when we, um, when we meditate in Jesus' words, when we abide in Jesus' words, 
his words actually infuse his spirit and life into our spirit and life. Uh, so we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but we also have the infusion of Jesus' heart and mind and spirit as we dwell in his words. Okay, so that is uh, as far as we're going to go today. Uh, we want more intimacy with God. Remember that we said before, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, uh, which was his prayer after the Last Supper, um, he starts out and he says, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Well, that knowing is intimacy. That's coming into intimate union, oneness with the Father and Son. And Jesus has just shown us how to do it. Use his love language. Hear what he says. And by faith, empowered by grace, do what he says. We don't need more faith. We just need faith. Not more. Just faith. Uh, and we need the faith to obey. Obey is the ultimate expression of belief. But we're also, we're also loving the Father and the Son the way they want to be loved. And they promise that when we do that, we will have intimacy. They will reveal themselves to us in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. So that's today's teaching. Now what we're going to look at uh, in our next time together, in the next episode, we're going to look at John 15, where we're going to see a level of intimacy described that you've never seen before. But God says we can experience it with him, and Jesus shows us how. Uh, and with that, I'll say I hope uh, you're blessed. Let me close in prayer. Father, I just pray uh, for those that are listening, uh, for each one, that your Holy Spirit would open their minds and hearts, that they would know in the depths of their soul that you desire intimacy with them. And you show us how to have it by hearing what your Son says and then by faith doing what he teaches, what he asks, what he commands. Father, we thank you that you've revealed your will to us through the 1900 statements of Christ that are recorded in the Gospels. We pray we might become students of those statements and more than students that we might become disciples by hearing and doing what he says. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next time. Amen.